I'm Pastor Michael Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. All right, so let me just start again. So we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and we're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments today, just the first few, uh, because I'm going to split this up. We're going to deal with the second half of them next week. And so the Ten Commandments is one of the most important parts of the book of Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments, apart from the story of the actual Exodus itself. And a while back, I remember I was checking my Facebook, and there was a friend of mine who posted something, and he was alarmed. He was up in arms about something, and he, he posted a claim that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to change the Ten Commandments, specifically the injunction against images, to justify their use of them in churches. And I'll say this to mock the person, I mean, it would be a serious concern if any organization was trying to change the Ten Commandments, but as luck would have it, or as providence maybe would have it, you could say, we had actually been covering the Ten Commandments in classes in seminary at that time. And the problem was, not that the Roman Catholic Church is trying to change the Ten Commandments, they're not, right? The the way different churches number them is different, right? So it can be a little bit confusing, too, when you read the commandments. Okay, well, is this part at the beginning? Is that uh, the, the preface? Uh, which ones are the actual commands themselves, and which one is actually kind of a gloss on the commandments. And so generally, the Reformed, the Orthodox, and the Anglican churches, they consider verse 3 to be the first commandment, verses 4 through 6 as the second commandment, verse 7 as the third, verses 8 through 11 as the fourth, verse 12 as the fifth, verse 13 as the sixth, verse 14 as the seventh, verse 15 as the eighth, verse 16 as the ninth, and verse 17 as the 10th, okay? Good thing this is recorded. You can rewind uh, when this is all over, or you can listen to the audio, and you can pick it up that way. Meanwhile, the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics number them a bit differently, with verses 1 through 6 as the first, verse 7 as the second, verse 8 to 11 as the third, verse 12 as the fourth, verse 13 as the fifth, verse 14 as the sixth, verse 15 as the seventh, verse 16 as the eighth, The first half of verse 17 is the ninth, and the second half of verse 17 as the tenth. Now, to confuse you even more, the Hebrew Bible considers verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, as that's the first commandment. But then they share generally the same number as uh, as the Reformed, the Orthodox, and the Anglican churches. So all that being said, I told the person, don't worry. The Catholics are not trying to change anything. They just number them differently. But in, in retrospect, it's, it's funny how upset he was because he kind of saw this as an attack on the Ten Commandments, or what we also have come to call them the Decalogue, which is the Greek name, Deca meaning ten, logos, which means word. And, and, and this conflict that the Ten Commandments can still kick up in our society is, is interesting because like even to this day, thousands upon thousands of years later, there have been controversies in our own country of the Ten Commandments being displayed in federal courthouses, and that ruckus continues to this day. So before we get to the Ten Commandments, 
directly. We need to correct a couple of notions that have sort of seeped its way into uh, popular Protestantism. And so this idea that we need to correct is that the Hebrew people, the Jews, the children of Israel, that they're trying to earn salvation by keeping the law, right? And we would call this salvation by works. That the Jews, the law is something they use that if they can keep it, they can earn grace in the sight of God. They can earn salvation. And then this gets contrasted with salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And this idea trickles down from the Reformation as many people start to equate St. Paul's epistles that deal with the works of the law as being the same as good works in general, and then applying that paradigm to medieval Catholicism. The big problem with this, brothers and sisters, is that by keeping the law, the Jews were not trying to earn salvation. They were not trying to earn God's grace. Right? The concept that we have of salvation is not the same thing as what we would see back back in those days. The law is a gracious gift from God meant to be used for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is to manage sin. And also, right, keep in mind, in the, in the, in the epistle reading we just heard, St. Paul said that in keeping the law, he was blameless. Blameless. So what's the idea here? So the idea is that in following the law, you show your ongoing faithfulness to God as part of his elect covenant community. Faithfulness to the law identifies one as part of God's people, and that faithfulness flows from the heart. And we see this right in Psalm 51, where David says, if you desired sacrifices, I would give it. The sacrifices God desires is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O Lord, you will not despise. But we always skip over the last part of Psalm 51 after David talks about repentance and all that stuff flowing from the heart. We always skip the last part. David ends with, then you will be satisfied with sacrifices that are offered to you upon your altar. So we cannot stick with some of these old paradigms that often get incorrectly summarized, right, as you know, religion versus relationship, right? Because faithfulness from the heart is just as important when we talk about law in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. So let's avoid right away those pitfalls that we've been jumping around for so long. And what we should note about the law also is that per St. Paul in the New Testament is that the law itself, right, though it manages sin, it doesn't actually give you the power to live by it. St. Paul's point is it can only point sin out, and it can only help you manage sin. It, it, and the law was meant also to give the means by which people of God could seek repentance. And we see the importance of the law uh, in the writings of Paul, but he, we also see it heard in the psalm that we just heard read this morning, Psalm 19. The psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are pure. The ordinances of the law are true and righteous. And Paul, in his epistles, even affirms the goodness of of the law. So we have to be very careful when we start to talk about the law and it's being binding on us as Christians in our own, in our own day and time. Then Jesus comes, right, and fulfills 
the law. And then the law is then written in our hearts, right? The power through the healing of our hearts through the Holy Spirit, right? Through his indwelling grace to live according to the commandments, i.e. the Ten Commandments, is, is given to us. And this, these are all summarized, right, in Matthew 27, 37 to 40, where Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so the Ten Commandments summarized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we'll see why, right? Because when we look at the Ten Commandments, the first few commandments deal with what we will what we'll call the interior life, and the other half of the commandments are what we deal with what we would call the exterior life, which is the same as here. Love the Lord your God, interior. Love your neighbor as yourself, exterior. One important thing to note here, too, is right before God gives the Ten Commandments, Moses calls all the people of Israel to the mountain, and they all agree to follow the covenant that God has made with them. And then Moses tells them to consecrate themselves for three days. God then appears in cloud and in fire on the mountain. And this should be familiar to us by now because we have seen this throughout Exodus, God appearing in cloud and God appearing in fire. And God says, don't touch the mountain because you will die, right? If any animal touches the mountain, you have to, to destroy that animal because God's holiness. When God shows up, his holiness is also present. And God calls Moses and he says, come up the mountain. And Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And as a commentator, White notes, at the heart of the covenant is the encounter with the living God, he who is this encounter consists in mystical knowledge and in mystical love, initiated by divine revelation and made possible by the grace of God active in the human mind and heart. So let's start the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So for our purposes, we're going to take this as the preface following the Reformed, the Anglican, and the Orthodox method of, of counting. And we should also know that, that, that there's a progression, right, in the Ten Commandments, like I just said, from what is the interior to the exterior, right? So the first few commandments outline how we relate to God, and then the rest of them refer to how we relate to one another. How do we love God, and how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? And this preface identifies the one giving the law. It comes directly from God, not just any God, but Yahweh, the God who mightily delivered his people from the hands of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. This is their God. This is the God of their ancestors. And this is the God who has sustained them even in their times of grumbling, even in their times of complaining. This statement flows right into the first commandment, right? I am the God who brought you out. You are mine. And this flows into the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So we need to remember that in the ancient Near East context, they believed, as did the writers of the New Testament, that there were other gods that existed, gods with a small g. And each nation or area had a particular deity, and that deity ruled over them, right? A deity in, you know, with air quotes. So for example, the Babylonians had Marduk, the Canaanites had Baal, right? But this doesn't mean that no other gods exists. It means that they're not actually gods at all. 
rather Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who liberated them from Egypt, right? And remember, the act of liberation from Egypt, we talked about this a lot, is an act of judgment against the gods, small g, of Egypt that those people worshipped and that those people served. And the act of bringing them out is showing their powerlessness in, when compared to the power of Yahweh. And we know that they have power, right? Because the magicians, they're able to replicate some of the plagues, but they can't do anything to stop them, and they can't do anything on the magnitude that Yahweh can. So those gods aren't really gods. They're demons, as St. Paul says, right? In the New Testament, he says the gods of the nations are demons. And we see throughout the Old Testament what happens when Israel forgets this and turns to serve other gods. When they, when they turn to serve the Asherahs and the Bells and all that stuff, they turn away from the covenant. As they turn to serve other gods, bad things wind up happening for them. And it even happens really soon, too. Later on in the story, Moses is gone for so long, the people are like, well, he's dead. You know, what's going on now, Aaron? Uh, what are we going to do? So Aaron's like, uh, give me all your gold. So they give him the gold, and he makes the golden calf, right? And then he says, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh-uh-uh. No, it's not. Second commandment, which ties into the story I just said. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So this is one commandment that has been wildly misunderstood, particularly in the 16th century during the Reformation. And, and what Luther inadvertently loosed came back to haunt him as people went around destroying beautiful works of religious art in churches. And in our own day and time, you know, this can be seen in church architecture that you could call four bare walls and a sermon. And if we understood the injunction against images that way, then this, this painting that we have of Christ, we would be breaking the second commandment. And there are some groups that would say, you are. And I would say, no, I'm not. And they would say, yes, you are. And I'd say, come at me, bro. You know where I work. But the injunction can't be against images in and of themselves, right? Because when giving instructions for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, God says, hey, when you build the Ark, here's a really, I want you to make it really ornate, and then I want you to put images on the top. I want you to carve two seraphim, and I want you to put them there on the lid. And then we also have, there, there's also other images in, in the tabernacle itself with the tapestries and, and pictures of angels and so forth. And archaeologically, different uh, Jewish homes and synagogues and stuff from way back in the day, pictures of religious scenes from the Bible. So we're not talking just about images in and of themselves, right? What's going on here is this commandment is an injunction against idolatry, against making images and then worshiping those images as gods, right? Because in those days, Idols were seen to be indwelt by the gods that they represented. And by saying the right things and doing the right things, you could get favorable treatment by those gods. But Yahweh is a God above all. Nothing can contain him. And the injunction can be taken to mean that we cannot depict God in his essence, as that is completely transcendent and unknowable, which is why you probably really shouldn't depict the Father in religious images. 
But it's interesting, right, that this, this comes up in church history, too, during the, the, uh, the 8th century. You know, there was a big controversy over what's called the, the icon, iconoclast controversy, where there was a large faction in the church that said these religious images are bad, that we should destroy them. And then the other ones were like, no, they're good. We should keep them. And then bad things would happen, and they would say, see, these bad things are happening because we have these images, so we need to destroy them. And the other people were like, no, we don't destroy them. And so you could see churches where this kind of played out. And this also kind of played out, too, in, in the Reformation in England, um, where they destroyed uh, religious art, too. Anyway, all that to say, uh, St. John of Damascus, right? He, 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 he's the, the main theologian that kind of comes up with this theology that helps kind of explain why this is okay. And his whole point is, in the incarnation, our Lord and Savior, God the Word, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, becomes human. And because he becomes human, we can depict him in art and in, in, in religious imagery. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is a command against blasphemy. Well, why can't we blaspheme? Because the name of God, Yahweh, is sacred. It is holy. And it cannot and should not be treated as a profane thing. And some commentators note that this, taking the Lord's name in vain, is also a command against magic. Against magic. In other words, trying to use the name of Yahweh in magical rituals. Because it was believed that if you knew the name of a thing, you had power. But we don't have power over Yahweh. Which is one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is so terrible. Because in that theology, you kind of do. If you say the right thing, then God is obligated to do that. And we see an example... Of, of somebody trying to do this in the New Testament, right? Simon Magus. He tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from St. Peter, who says, you have no part in us. The name of God is something we dare not take lightly, dare not use lightly, or try to twist to our own purposes. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And this might seem like an odd command, God is essentially telling his people the need to have a weekly siesta. This rest on the seventh day is rooted in the seven days of creation, and God undertakes the creation of the world in six days, and he rests on the seventh. And the Sabbath is the time where the people of God come together to worship God and to refrain from unnecessary work. This is for the cultivation of the life of the mind, as White notes, and devotion to God. This is a day dedicated to God. And anything that detracts from that must be left alone. Any work that is taken that detracts against setting aside that time for worship and for fellowship with one another is something that should be refrained from. So, all that said, when we look at these first four commandments, right, we see this interior life, right? We see that we shall serve no other gods but Yahweh. We should not try to represent, we should not try to create a carved image and worship it, or idolatry or to turn and serve other gods. We shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, and we must remember to worship the Lord, the interior life. And it's interesting, at the end of this, the people say to Moses, 
don't let God speak to us because if he does, we're going to die. And there's this fear in them. And I'd be afraid too, right? If you were at the mountain, you'd be afraid too, seeing the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and all of that stuff. You'd be scared too. And the people are afraid and they said, don't let God talk to us because we'll die. Moses says, don't be afraid. And, and we talk about, when we, about God's speaking to us, right? We, we, I think we should look at this through the lens of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus is God speaking. Jesus is God's coming to his people and telling them what God wants. And the people of God are still afraid, even when the word of God becomes flesh. They're still afraid. They don't understand. And that parable of the wicked tenants reminds them that they continually resist the word of God. Just like they resisted the messengers in the parable, they reject the word of God. They reject God speaking through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, as we know, is God. Colossians 1, 15, 16 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only is Christ the image of the invisible God, he is also the one through whom all things were created and through whom everything in the universe is held together by. This is why idols and false gods and demons and our own lusts make terrible gods because they are nothing in the light of Christ. Jesus Christ is God's own self-revelation, the Word made flesh. Jesus appeared in the burning bush. Jesus blocked the chariots of Pharaoh. Jesus was the manna from heaven sent to feed them. Jesus is the rock that flows with water. That all who drink from it will themselves become streams of living water. And this points us then, brothers and sisters, to the point of human existence, union with God, expressed in our worship of God. And this is what the commandments draw us towards. This is why there's something that are still, I would say, binding on us today because they help us to order our interior life and our exterior life, our life with God and our life with one another. Our worship is not something then that we just experience, that we sit by as active spectators. For too long, Christians have sat by like spectators at concert services or lecture halls and said when we are call, what we are called to is worship as an act we participate in on the seventh day, the holy day, set aside for singing and prayer and hearing the scriptures and the preaching from them and receiving the Eucharist and giving and our meditation on God. As this happens then, the shape of our interior life begins to become transformed by Christ. And once our interior life begins that process of transformation, what happens? we are able then to order our exterior life because Christ gives us the ability in healing us to follow his commands as he has summarized them so succinctly and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. 
as our interior life is transformed, so too our exterior life is transformed. And so next week, you'll have to come back. We're going to uh, look at the last six commandments. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory, together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Lansman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malansman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need, gofundme.com slash UCC. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you and would keep you.